Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every two weeks, we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. In the light of the recent coronavirus outbreak, we are now recording and producing episodes of Interpreting India remotely. In May this year, tensions flared up between India and Nepal as India opened up a road passing through a disputed section of the Indo-Nepalese border. The move invited a stern response from the Nepalese government, which went on to add these disputed areas of Kalapani, Nipu Lake and Limpiadura in its official maps. This action was followed by the deployment of Nepal's armed police force in border points close to these areas. While India has rejected Nepal's claims and actions, it has not yet taken any proactive steps to resolve the matter. Prominent voices in the strategic communities of both the countries have cautioned that if unchecked, this situation could lead to a wider rift. What is more, this dispute has come at a time when India and China are at loggerheads on their disputed border, and there is concern about rising Chinese influence in Nepal as well as other parts of South Asia. What therefore does the present situation hold for India-Nepal relations? Are ties between the two neighbors heading to a point of no return? To discuss this today, we have Constantino Xavier. Dr. Xavier is a fellow in foreign policy studies at Brookings India in New Delhi and at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. His research includes India's foreign and security policies as a regional power, the issue of connectivity and security in South Asia and Indian Ocean regions, as well as how India's democratic values and institutions influence its external engagements. Tino has previously worked at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. as a media correspondent in the South Asian region and as an advisor to the Embassy of Portugal during the Portuguese presidency of the European Union. He has held fellowships at the Institute of Defense Studies and Analysis and the Observer Research Foundation in New Delhi. He has also received prestigious research awards from the United States Fulbright Program. Tino, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you with us today. Thank you, Srinath. Uh, let's start with a little bit of background. Uh, could you describe what the main sort of contours of the recent dispute between India and Nepal are? Clearly, this is not something which has come as a bolt out of the blue. It's a bit of a background. But could you just uh, begin by giving our listeners a sense of how the situation has developed and why it has taken a particular turn that it has? Yeah, it's, uh, you're absolutely right. It's not something uh, that is surprising to people that have been following India-Nepal relations. In fact, you could say that this goes back to the mid-19th century, to a series of treaties then signed between the Raj and the Kingdom of Nepal. Um, and a little issue, which basically is a territory of around 500 square kilometers uh, at the tri-junction uh, between India, Nepal and China on the uh, western border of Nepal in the state of Uttarakhand, in the Indian state of Uttarakhand. And uh, that border has always remained ambiguous um, during the colonial times in the post-independence India period since 47 um, and has never been settled, basically. So that piece of land, you know, was de facto always in Indian hands, uh, including the Indian army, uh, including for 
trade purposes between India and China in the 1950s, uh, including for pilgrimage uh, purposes. This is an important route for um, Hindu pilgrims to visit the uh, Mount uh, Kailash um, in Tibet. So de facto, it's always been in Indian hands. Uh, but Nepal has been claiming uh, this portion of the territory. Uh, it's done so with more or less assertiveness. In fact, Often, Nepali rulers uh, pre-47, post-47, up to the 90s, uh, sort of permitted uh, and allowed India's presence in that territory, didn't bring the issue up. But as uh, Nepal has democratized in recent years, as foreign policies become more of a political and emotional issue for a new generation of Nepalis, my sense is this issue has been... Um, becoming more salient, and Nepal has become more engaged in solving this issue, basically claiming the issue more openly in bilateral talks with India, asking India to settle the boundary. In fact, after 30 years of negotiations of settling other parts of the boundary, this and another spot are the two remaining issues that have not been settled. Nepal has repeatedly asked to solve this, and for some reason and the other, this has been festering and not solved. And therefore, as you know, Srinath, when these things fester and are not dealt with politically, they eventually um, uh, spiral out of control and lead to the dispute and the tensions we've seen over the last two months now. Um, you mentioned about you know, Nepal's kind of democratizing foreign policy in the context of what's been happening in that country over the last you know, 15 years or so. And I understand that boundary issues are always tied in some ways of the nation itself. Uh, but in this case, is there anything else that is of intrinsic value as far as this territory is concerned in terms of commercial value or public value, so to speak? Not for Nepal, which is a paradox. For India, as I mentioned, there is a strategic value, which is very important. This is a, one of the quickest routes connecting the Gangetic Plains and the subcontinent to the Tibetan Plateau. Uh, it is an important commercial route, uh, currently obviously not in use, but has been and could become again an important uh, point for trade and a pilgrimage and symbolic route too for people to people ties and to, to connect India and, and Tibet and the wider China. Uh, for Nepal, not so much, uh, which again leads me then therefore to this point that this has become a symbolic issue for Nepal, which has always been suspicious about India. Uh, as a smaller state, obviously accords tremendous value to every issues relating to territorial sovereignty, uh, and you know therefore has, I think, you know, brought this issue up in 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 more significant ways. But I don't see any particular value for Nepal in that territory beyond an emotional value. In fact, the populations in those territories are de facto attached to the Indian state. They hold Indian documents today. The Indians, the Nepali state has never really exercised its authority in that, I mean, it's hardly populated area. So I'd say, yes, very little value. And how do you read the response from Kathman? Because, you know, the minute you put something onto a map and make formal claims, that always hardens positions out. And, you know, we know that from mm -hmm. even the history of, say, the India-China boundary dispute. I mean, the minute official maps are published, which then know, show very clearly kind of demarcated claim lines and so on, then the diplomatic kind of track becomes even more challenging. It's a complicated kind of a move. Uh, what do you think prompted, you know, the Nepalese government to go down the 
Yeah, on this on the first issue, Srinath, I think we've heard in Delhi over the last two months the government signal that if Nepal passed the constitutional amendment, which it did pass, um, uh, to revise its emblem and its map, that that would somehow make negotiations more difficult and settling the issue more difficult. I, I, I understand that logic, but at the same time, this has always been a political issue. And if India has its map claiming parts of what Nepal sees as its own territory, I find it a bit difficult to understand why Nepal shouldn't formalize its own claims of a territory it's de facto always claimed informally. Putting it on a map or in, in, in some formal text is not going to change that. It makes it maybe slightly more difficult, but that's just uh, two states which have a dispute. Um, and uh, why the question is more important, which you ask why Nepal did it, um, I think contesting whether it should have, could have done it or not, I think is is not so important. But why the issue is political in the sense that of what I was mentioning before, there's two narratives here, right? You will hear again the narrative that this was a political move to deflect attention by the Nepali government, led by Prime Minister K.P. Sharma Oli, um, to deflect the tensions um, in terms of his uh, weak governance, in terms of his... Uh, party being riddled by various factions and there was a very weak government in place in April that he was leading on the verge of collapsing. He was on the verge of losing the majority in the Nepali parliament. So of course, when India announced that it was building a road or announced the inauguration of a new road through that territory on May 8th, that came almost as a gift from heaven for Prime Minister Oli because it allowed him to you know, bring this issue up, give it political salience, rally Nepali nationalists uh, against India and deflect attention from this internal weakness he was facing. Uh, in fact, the amendment in the Nepali, both houses of the Nepali parliament were passed with consensus. This shows you the salience of this issue uh, within Nepal, where even his hardest opponents uh, from uh, from a Prime Minister Prachanda to even parties of the minorities in the South, uh, the Madeshi parties, which traditionally are more friendly towards India, every single member of parliament voted in favor of this amendment, knowing it was a political game. But this shows to you how important this Nepali and emotional issue is for, for that country. Now, that's one narrative you will hear that the, he therefore use this tactically, cynically, if you want to deflect attention. You'll hear another narrative that this was an issue that was created by China. Um, in fact, the uh, uh, constitutional amendment in Nepal came a few weeks after the escalation in the India-China standoff um, in the region of Ladakh and Himalayas. So there's a whole narrative, you know, suggesting that this was instigated by the People's Republic of China, uh, that Prime Minister Oli being close to China uh, tried to bring the Chinese on board and therefore was somehow used as a proxy to create trouble for India on another front. But I think there's a third narrative which we sometimes forget, which relates Trina, to what you were saying before. If you don't solve these issues early on, there will be many opportunities for them to become politicized sooner or later. So even without an India-China standoff, even without a weak government led by Prime Minister Oli, sooner or later, this would have happened, this escalation um, and this claim from Nepal. Because India had promised, India in fact recognizes there's a problem. India in many statements since the 1990s recognizes that there is 
a boundary to be settled and territory that is ambiguous and has promised to hold talks, most recently at the foreign secretary level, um, um, but then dilly-dally, delayed, we don't know. But we, for fact, we know that since 2015, the Nepal government twice asked for this issue to be solved at the appropriate forum that had been agreed between both countries. And that India didn't respond. We don't know why. But the fact is that it didn't. And, you know, when you don't, this is exactly what happens. Uh, the diplomatic track didn't work, so the political track took precedence. You know, I, I want to come back to the question of the what any of China in this particular context is. And uh, I do want to sort of spend some time unpacking that. But let me just put you a little bit more in terms of you know, the state of play between India and Nepal, clearly from the year that you mentioned, 2015. In some ways, seems to have been an important kind of turning point with the sort of you know, crisis that we had. Uh, so how do you think the bilateral relationship really has held up over the last five years or so. And is what ap- what happening now, is it does it fit the broad pattern or is it a bit of an aberration? How do you read uh, the overall trend and situate the current sort of crisis? Yeah, Srin, I think, you know, I sometimes people ask me, why do you work so much on Nepal? Why do you focus so much on it? And I think it's one of the most exciting issues facing India. And even if you're interested in geopolitics and democracy, as I mentioned before, of Nepal in post-reconciliation because Nepal went through a war for more than 10 years. Uh, if you look at uh, spheres of influence between two great powers, India and China, th- this has all the ingredients to understand really uh, um, how international politics operate, the importance of history, the importance of people-to-people ties that transcend the state to state official relationship. So what's playing out in Nepal, just to give you a bit, I think, the context of how the Indian-Nepal relationship is being stressed and coming under a moment of change, I see, is that, you know, you had a traditional relationship between India and Nepal that worked till the 1990s, where India was really a predominant, if not almost the only significant player in whatever happened in Nepal, whether it was the developmental imperatives of the country, the economic agenda, economic assistance through uh, development cooperation, political micromanaging. Uh, India has played that game and could afford to play that game at ease in Kathmandu for many decades. What really changed and what is fascinating is that you don't, you have an opening of that country towards many other fronts since the 1990s and particularly since the late 2000s. You have an opening towards China uh, through stronger diplomatic relations, political relations, uh, India and China Nepal trade has increased. China is now the largest foreign direct investor uh, source in Nepal. Uh, if you look at development cooperation, again, China has uh, overpassed, uh, surpassed India's um, uh, support to Nepal. So you really see a clash of spheres of influence, a reactivation of what used to be a Chinese sphere of influence historically, but is coming out stronger now. And also Nepal reaching out to many other partners. The Americans, the Japanese are important players today. The British play a very important rail, in fact, one of the most important donors for uh, um, Nepal. So you have many more actors, and that's making the, the Nepal a very interesting place to observe how these various powers and actors worldwide are trying to shape the political and economic and connectivity future of that Himalayan you know, country 
which used to be completely landlocked. But on the India front, so, you know, I think there's two approaches which are coming to clash here. There's the old approach, which reflects that old India-Nepal policy until the 1990s, which is based on politics, on security, uh, on military relations, on a geostrategic understanding of Nepal. And I find since the 2000s, you now have had India develop a second approach. Uh, that is much more focused on economic interdependence, uh, infrastructural connectivity. You know, the India-Nepal border is on paper an open border, according to the 1950 treaty. But in reality, if you visit it, I visited it actually for the first time earlier this year, and I was astonished because the infrastructure is abysmal. You can't really cross that border uh, any by any um, account that borders actually not open in terms of mobility, whether it's physical, railways, roads, the hydroelectric potential that was never properly explored, uh, optic fiber links that don't exist or were laid in the 1990s but have not, have not been upgraded. So that second approach I see taking now greater em- having more emphasis in India. And that's not a 2015 story or a Modi government story that started in the, in the 2000s. But I see India torn to deal with this new Nepal and this new China in Nepal. I think that leads then to this crisis where you're focusing on a territorial dispute. You're focusing again on who's in power in Kathmandu. Will Prime Minister Oli survive or not? When at least, I think the largest amount of your efforts should actually be going to the agenda of connectivity, interdependence on the border, where there have been interesting examples of progress. You now have a petroleum products pipeline connecting for the first time two countries in South Asia, connecting India and Nepal. You have um, energy being designated as a trade commodity for the first time between both countries, allowing for that hydropower potential of Nepal to be explored. You have a new railway track, finally, after decades, being reactivated for passenger railways between India and Nepal. You have new roads being built. You have new you know, border posts for, that bring together customs, immigration, uh, that facilitate trade. You now have Nepali products that can actually connect through Indian seaports at much greater ease because there's an electronic trading system now, which has been developed the last two, two, two years between India and Nepal. So I think that's the future, but India is really torn. And that's, that's the tension I see in India's Nepal policy. Do uh, you agree that, you know, we have also, Minister Zen New Delhi has also made some missteps in the way that politically it has sought to deal with Nepal. Particularly the 2015 crisis came about because of an overt kind of demand which was made by the Indian government vis a vis the constitutional provisions. And even if you assume that you did not have a weak government, but this is the kind of a, you know, a posture which was bound to create an anti India sentiment. Especially in the context of a democratizing country, as you rightly say, you know that's that's mm-hmm. the political background. So, in in that sense, you know, if you go back to the mid two thousands when India was involved in helping Nepal democratize in the Maoist conflict phase, uh, to a period when you know the, the political relationships between the two countries have come to this particular pass. I mean, do you think is it fair to say that? New Delhi also has some questions to answer about the manner in which it is dealt with Nepal politically. I mean, I accept all the other points about economic integration, infrastructure, etc. But uh, perhaps there is something to be said about the manner in which we have dealt with Nepal. Uh, mm-hmm. 
No, absolutely. That, that's exactly my point about that first approach I was talking about, the political approach, the security approach, the geostrategic approach of interfering, micromanaging, trying to shape the political constellations in Nepal that, uh, you know, you could do for a long time and afford to do with resentment in Nepal. It's not that when you did it in the 1950s, by the way, when you did it in the 1970s, when you did it in the late 1980s, when you did it, like you mentioned, in the mid-2000s, in man, many crucial moments of political transition and liberalization sometimes, and mostly of, of Nepal. India played a crucial role in, in engineering outcomes uh, because it was uh, the only player that could do that. Uh, no doubt that those are increasingly difficult today for many reasons. Um, I think one reason is that uh, the country now is stable. For, I mean, you've had 12 prime ministers in 12 years after the end of the civil war in Nepal between 2006 and 2016. Since 2017 now, you've had a government that's been in place for more than three years uh, with a new constitution adopted in 2015, about which India may have reservations in terms of the inclusivity agenda and the democracy principle, which has always been there since the 1950s. Prime Minister Nehru early on has always cautioned Nepal and all of other neighbors, in fact, to the importance of creating systems of greater democratic representation, pluralism towards minorities, in many ways promoting the Indian model in these other countries, not through an issue of principle and morality, but because, you know, the belief in India was that this would work and this would stabilize these countries and therefore would also be in India's interest. So therefore, it's not surprising to see many Indian officials saying that a more democratic Nepal will be a more stable Nepal and therefore will be also a Nepal that is in India's interest. But absolutely, I think what you see now is that that first approach uh, has diminishing returns. So Prime Minister Oli is in fact the political leader in Nepal that rode the wave of anti-Indianism during that blockade in 2015, comes to power in 2017, proclaims an India first policy in government, has an excellent relationship with Prime Minister Modi at the highest level, and now again, three years later, is being described by the Indian government as a problem, as someone that is pandering to China, as someone that has anti-India interests at heart. So this speaks to the, I think, point that the utility of you know bringing up or down different factions in that first approach uh, in, in, in India's Nepal policy is having decreasing returns and is actually often counterproductive because you're wasting your very limited diplomatic staff, your limited attention on the neighborhood. These are difficult countries. You have an understaffed foreign service. You have limited assets to work with in these countries. It's very difficult. The region is changing, in fact, as I was mentioning before, because China is offering so much more, is showing up as a reliable actor that you know is helping these countries to finally embrace and implement their modernization strategy. Nepal's infrastructure need, financing needs are huge. So China is showing up, other countries are showing up. And you basically, if you keep following that first approach, whether it's through identity politics in the Terai in 2015, whether it is denying uh, to buy hydropower, hydropower that, is, that is coming out of Chinese-built projects in Nepal, which was an Indian suggestion two years ago that it would refuse to do so, therefore basically vetoing any Nepal-China deal to develop the hydro potential of Nepal. I think these are what I call the old, it's the old mindset of 
denial uh, and of political micromanagement. And that second approach, unfortunately, I was talking about, I actually still see as unfortunately not being the main in one. It's slowly coming up, uh, but you know, China in that sense is only a distraction. If India did a bit more in terms of delivering more, better and faster on that second approach, I think many of these problems would be perfectly avoidable. No, I think you're absolutely right because you know, given the kind of depth of the relationship that exists between Nepal and India, geographically, in so many ways, right? I mean, these are such uh, intertwined uh, countries and societies. That it, it, it would be a pity if we sort of squandered so many of those strengths in the pursuit of, as you're saying, you know, attempts to fix very small kind of details and try to get everything done the way that we want. I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, but I want to, you know, go back to the point about China, which is a very important one, because as you rightly pointed out, China has expanded its economic in Nepal, as it has done in some other South Asian countries as well. But Nepal is clearly, uh, you know, at, at one of the countries where there is a lot of uh, you know, Chinese aid assistance activity uh, flowing through. Uh, but what is interesting to me is that, you know, in the context of the India-China relationship, how do we kind of conceive of Nepal uh, as an actor? Because as you rightly said, it's very easy to our Nepal as, or any particular Nepalese government as being sort of, you know, mastermind over the Chinese to do this or that thing. Uh, and that might, you know, take some very important agency away from them and enable us to misread the situation rather than understand what Nepalese situations are. So how do you think uh, India should be understanding the relationship between China and Nepal? What are the points which are difficult for India to accept and live with? But what are areas where, you know, we should understand that Nepal has its own choices to make as well? Yeah, I think, you know, the the uh, India-China relationship in third countries, whether it's Nepal in particular here, but we could be talking about Sri Lanka, we could be talking about Bangladesh, is actually been more complex than either, you know, conflict uh, and India trying to deny the Chinese space traditionally. There have been examples of where India and China have actually coordinated and uh, diplomatic positions uh, and aligned positions even, for example, to keep the Americans out or other actors out or just to, you know, reduce even the bargaining power of these third countries. There have been even cases of cooperation. We saw that as recently as uh, 2018, if I'm not mistaken, when India and China announced that they would jointly train Afghan diplomats. So there's been this whole talk about China, India plus one, which Beijing was pushing uh, a post-Oklam crisis for India and China actually to cooperate in third countries. Uh, you've had examples of coexistence where India, like you, I think, were alluding to, has sometimes been actually quite comfortable with Chinese presence or has even outsourced a certain... Uh, uh, tasks to the Chinese. I'm thinking concretely even in the end of the civil war in Sri Lanka, for example, India was actually quite comfortable with Sri Lanka uh, uh, sourcing uh, uh, weapons and military support from China to defeat the Tamil insurgency and kept India in the loop on that. So the history has been more complex, number one. Let's see how that plays out, of course, in the next few months and years as now we saw another decline in India-China relationship. Uh, but in Nepal in particular, you know, you, you'll, you'll, you'll hear the narrative again of... Um, China making it more difficult for India. And, you know, frankly, I think that's often an excuse because 
the examples I gave you before, if you don't have an operating railway link between India and Nepal today, you only have to ask yourself why. Uh, if I meet the director general of the Nepal government railways department, which I did a few months ago, and he tells me I'm getting all the support I need, technical feasibility studies, financing to develop a railway master plan for Nepal. And from India, I'm not hearing back. Again, you cannot blame anyone but India uh, for not being able to deliver on these modernization plans on any type of infrastructure, hydropower, the telecom sector in Nepal. These are countries that are growing, that are opening, that are in need of financing, and they will not put up anymore with, you know, the old mindset of, if I may say so, a few crumbles from the Indian system in terms of some grants, some lines of credit, you know, for all the good things India has done, it's still far too little for this new uh, uh, world we're living in. So what you hear often is therefore that everything China does is a security threat to India. And that speaks to me often to the economic insecurities on the Indian side. Uh, For example, when the Maldives signed a, a free trade agreement with China, that was seen as a security threat. Now, the question is often, why is India not able to offer better trade deals to these countries and still has many products on its sensitive list? With Nepal, the relationship is a bit better. It's obviously basically two integrated economies. But here again, you see any type of investment from the Chinese um, seen as a security threat, whether it's a new airport, which the Chinese are building, a new railway link connecting Kathmandu to the border with China, uh, or new investments in the telecom sector. And, you know, that easily then translates into this whole narrative again about China being an authoritarian state and playing politics in Nepal. And I think that's an aspect that needs a bit more study. I think a lot of what the Chinese are doing these days in Nepal is traditional public diplomacy. You know, they're building their own support base. They're reaching out to journalists. They're reaching out to universities. They're creating their own Confucius institutes. They're connecting with political parties, which they had never done before. So they're doing normal outreach. I think, therefore, that should be accepted. At a more nefarious level, yes, the Chinese have also now learned the game of political interference and micromanagement. And I think there is a case there, first, that that is maybe not the smartest game, which India is learning the tough way, uh, that China is trying to, for example, now uh, reportedly support Prime Minister Oli to remain in government. And, you know, you see this old traditional micromanagement that the Chinese ambassador is doing, which frankly, Indian ambassadors have done for decades. And at the third level, I think, yes, there is a qualitative difference, I have to say, between India micromanaging and China micromanaging. You have now China you know, actively curtailing uh, freedom of the press in Nepal, criticizing Nepali media for reporting on Tibet, on Xinjiang, on Hong Kong. You have the Chinese embassy actively uh, um, you know, reaching out to political parties and creating workshops to sort of study the Chinese model of development, which was obviously a one-party-led authoritarian model. So I think that will be a very interesting battle of ideas playing out in Kathmandu in the future. Now, my only concern is that, you know, as India-China relations uh, head south, as they seem to be in the wake of uh, recent standoff along the line of action control, then there will be an increasing tendency to look at our neighbors, if not primarily, certainly considerably through the lens of how their relationship with China impacts them. Mm. In a sense, there is going to be this tendency. So my, my last question, therefore, to you is to say that, you know, given 
the history, the geography, the cultural backgrounds that India and Nepal have with each other. Uh, how do we arrest the slide? Uh, how do we prevent any kind of further drift into a, a, a situation which becomes much more difficult for us to handle? What do you think the two countries should focus on in order to build confidence? And to say that, listen, this there is uh, space for everyone to pursue what their interests and choices are. But at the same time, we do believe that this relationship is a special relationship because it is. I mean, I, I don't think either India or Nepal. What do you think both countries should do in order to restore trust and confidence? Because it seems to me that this is, whichever way you look at it, a very special relationship. India and Nepal have a kind of a relationship for that they simply do not have with any other third country. And uh, how do we ensure that as India-China competition uh, accelerates in the region, that we are able to insulate India-Nepal relations from whatever might be the China angle, so and continue to build confidence and trust and prevent a drift or a lurch towards any further? Yeah, I, I think there's two things you cannot do, and one thing you should do. And uh, the two things you should avoid basically is the first one I mentioned: this political, geostrategic approach towards Nepal, which unfortunately I I sustain remains predominant. Uh, this is not from this government; this has roots before, but I think has often come out also in this government, in particular reflecting uh, the decision making uh, uh, in the Modi government. There's many Nepal policies. Uh, there is a, a, a diplomatic approach. There's an economic approach, and there's a security and political and even intelligence approach that often, unfortunately, comes up and takes uh, precedence over the other approaches. The second avoidance, I think, is uh, that we need to keep in in mind uh, to imp- to at least not hurt relations, because sometimes not hurting the relationship is more important than than doing much to to deepen the relationship, which, which is already special, like you mentioned. The second thing is to emphasize somehow that this relationship is very special, that these are countries that share the same culture, the same religion, that anything that happens, these countries will naturally always support each other and be uh, um, uh, respectful to each other. That's That's no longer the case anymore. You have a new elite in Nepal, younger people that don't share the same affinity that say the former kings of Nepal, the former feudal aristocracy of the Rana regime had with Nepal, that even the older Democrats of Nepal, I'm thinking of B.P. Koirala, of Ganesh Mayan Singh, of uh, Surya Bahadur Tapa, all former prime ministers or leaders in Nepal that had very special relationships with Nepal, you know, could pick up the call with India, could pick up the phone, speak to different um, um, prime ministers or leaders in in uh, uh, India. Now, you hear this often being in this government uh, articulated as a greater India, that somehow, you know, these Hindu times and civilizational ties will keep the relationship going. This leads to a lot of resentment in Nepal. This is a sovereign, independent country, de facto actually an older uh, state than the Indian state. Uh, It is a state that, uh, as I mentioned, is younger, with a younger population than than India itself, that is going through a bubble of democratization after years of royal monarchical absolutism and then civil war. So you, 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 you may want not to emphasize those links. What you can do 
and silently and successfully, I think that has been happening since the 2000s, but so much more needs to be done. And that's all you can do and should do from the Indian perspective and the Nepali perspective too, by the way, is to develop that deep interdependence between these two countries. So again, the paradox is you have an open border, you have a, a special relationship where even Nepali citizens can serve in the Indian armed forces or in the Indian civil services at par with Indian citizens. You have six to eight million Indian Nepali citizens living in India. You have the Indian army chief being an honorary army chief, uh, honorary general in the Nepal army. You have all these special ties. But unless you now develop this new modern economic connectivity between these two countries. And I'm talking again about the basic sectoral areas, starting with transportation infrastructure, uh, with roads, railways, uh, telecommunications, electricity grids that effectively connect the Nepali uh, 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 lowlands of the Terai, the mid-region where Kathmandu is, and even maybe the high-altitude areas close to China, to the Indian subcontinent and to the Gangetic Plains through effective socioeconomic you know, and cultural interdependence, then oh, unless you do that, you will not have the special relationship going. You know, I was in the Terai early in this month, uh, early in this year again, and you know, people are connected to India often. They share the same religion. They speak often Hindi. They marry across the border. The border is not even visible. It's not fenced. It's not controlled. But at the same time, the new India is not really present in that area. They don't have connections with the Indian media. They don't, the think tanks in that area are not connected to research institutions and universities in India. Their economy is informally almost pre-modern era connected to India, but it's not a really uh, sophisticated market economy connecting, you know, Uttar Pradesh and Bihar, for example, to, to the provinces on the Nepali side. So as long as you do that, and there's a world of opportunities on that connectivity uh, aspect, I think the relationship will stay strong between India and Nepal and in fact get actually much stronger and you don't have to worry whether it's Nepal or India about what China is doing. You know, that sounds like very sane advice to me. I hope powers that we are listening. Thank you so much for joining us today and making the time. Thank you so much, Srinath. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay safe and don't forget to wash your hands. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage. page.